Thanks, Chris. This is, a, this is an exciting day for me. So I've been in, uh, I'll share a little bit more about myself, because uh, fellows should be out, they don't know me yet, but uh, I'm pretty new on staff. But uh, I've been in ministry for, oh, going on, I don't know, 16 years. And up until today, I have never preached behind a real pulpit. So this is like a bucket list item. Like, I feel like I'm getting my pastor's wings today, becoming a real pastor for the first time. So, um, but honestly, it's an honor to be here. And, um, and honestly, it's pretty incredible when uh, Rick shared with me just uh, where you guys are at right now and the, and the need. Um, I definitely did not expect uh, Chris to be here this morning, and especially as he's fighting uh, pretty hard in the season. And uh, I hope you guys know just the amount of love and faithfulness and commitment uh, that he's demonstrating and, uh, towards you. And um, yeah, it's pretty incredible to see. And uh, I'm honored just to be here. It still amazes me that I get to do this with my life. Um, I'm nothing more than a sinner saved by grace. And uh, I am, um, on paper, it makes maybe a little sense that I'm here. I'm, I'm actually a fourth-generation pastor, which is kind of neat. Um, my dad's been in ministry for 36, 37 years and, and counting. Uh, my grandfather was a Methodist minister in small rural churches in Nebraska for his entire life. Uh, same is true as my, my great-grandfather. Um, but if you knew me as a young man, um, let's just say neither one of us would have seen this coming. Um, a lot of my, my friends and, and my family, too, are still surprised, as am I. Uh, yeah, yeah, you know, I growing up, I feel like there's with pastor's kids, they tend to go one of two ways, you know. Uh, some of them are some of the most amazing people you ever meet, and uh, they're so passionate for Christ, and they're like astronauts in their spare time. Uh, and then there's the rest of us that kind of go the other direction, and, uh, and that was me for a very long time. But I could never fully shake Jesus. Uh, even as I was running as, as hard and as far from him as I could get, uh, there was just something about him that always rang true. And when I was uh, a young man, uh, I got to a point where I just stopped running and spread my life into Jesus' hands. Um, but the whole church thing uh, would take me a lot longer to come around on. And uh, some of that was just because of experiences growing up, um, abusive pastors and church splits and just some of the ugliness that happens when uh, people in leadership walk away from, from Jesus. Uh, but something happened when I was in college and just out of college that would change my life forever. Uh, my sister, my younger sister, uh, when she was a teenager, uh, found herself struggling with addiction uh, to meth and um, started to tear apart her life. And if you know anything about, about meth, it's, it's a physically devastating disease. And... Um, and we almost lost her a couple times. But after a number of years, a whole lot of prayer, she found her, her way into recovery. And part of recovery was uh, we, would, we went through a process together as a family at a rehab facility in the middle of nowhere, Nebraska, a place called Valley Hope. And they walked us in there. I'll never forget the first day. We, they walked us into this room with a number of, of recovering addicts trying to recover and they walked us to this wall, and there's this big, expansive wall. And from end to end and from ceiling to floor, uh, it was covered with these black coffee mugs. And they sat us down, and they said, you just need to know um, that most of you are going to die of your addiction. St statistically, most of you are not going to make it. Um, and so you need to decide right now how serious you're going to get about leaning in and listening and dealing with this, this problem. 
They said at the end of your, your time here, uh, you're going to paint a coffee mug and take it home with you. But every time somebody who's come through our program dies, we paint a coffee mug black and we hang it on this wall. And apart from a miracle, if you don't deal with this, uh, someday, perhaps not long from now, we're going to be hanging your mug on this wall. And so we began this recovery process and uh, got to know a number of the people there. And incredible people, but, we, you know, but hurting broken people. And we began to sit with them and pray with them and hear their stories. And man, I wish you could hear their stories. You know, stories of, of, of parents they never met. Uh, stories of all kinds of abuse as children. You know, physical, emotional, sexual. Uh, homelessness, time spent behind bars. Um, homelessness. And, you know, it just causes you to think, you know, some of these, these folks, they never had a chance at a normal life. And apart from God getting a hold of their life and doing a transformational work, they, they don't have a chance um, at making it. And in the process of getting to know these people, uh, we found out that a number of them, most of them would be moving back to Lincoln, Nebraska, which is where we lived at the time. And we came to a, a, a realization that was pretty devastating, and that was that we, we realized that there was no way that we could invite them to the church that we were at. And they're really great people, but most churches are just not really equipped <laughs> uh, to, to interact with a pretty raw um, ragtag bunch that those in recovery tend to be, certainly this group. And, and we knew the moment that they come walking through the doors, you know, just covered in tattoos and stepping out to smoke every 10 minutes and using language that, you know, most of us are not used to hearing in church spaces, that uh, even though there were great people there, that the system was going to reject them. They, no one would have to say a word they would figure out real fast that this is just not a place that you really belong. And to make a long story short, uh, that wrecked us pretty good. And we knew that we had to do something. And so we planted a church uh, for them. And, uh, and it was a mess, <laughs> I'll just tell you. Uh, we didn't know what we were doing. We had never done it before. Um, we were in downtown Lincoln, right next to the University of Nebraska, uh, right down the street from the, the homeless shelter there. And uh, it was a mess. Uh, but it was a beautiful mess. And we started to see God change lives of people who had nowhere else to turn. We saw people, you know, it, with meth addiction in, in particular, the recovery rate is less than 5%. We started seeing people actually go get clean and, and see people come off the streets. And, and we were able to employ some of them through the church and help them with uh, getting them into homes. And, and it was incredible. I think for the first time in my life, I saw a picture of what the bride of Christ, the church, could be. Uh, and I would never be the same again. Um, I could never again turn my back on the bride of Christ and because I saw what she could be, you know, what it looked like when the bride of Christ rolled up her sleeves and got the dirt of her city underneath her fingernails and loved people as Jesus loved people. And I think maybe for the first time in my life, I really caught a glimpse of the heart of Jesus. And I share all this partly because, you know, we don't know each other, and I want you to hear a little bit of where I'm coming from, but also because one of the things that still bothers me and I, I, is I spent so many years in church. You know, I spent so, so many years sitting uh, in a pew. And, and like most churches, we talked about Jesus a lot. We preached sermons about Jesus and we sang songs about Jesus. Uh, at Easter, we, we shared the gospel and about his death and resurrection. And we even did like an altar call. You know, and the same 10 people would come forward every year. <laughs> you know, uh, Gary's getting saved again. That's great, you know. Um, 
But for most of my life, I, I somehow missed the heart of Jesus in it all. I, and it leads me to believe, like, or wonder, how is that possible? And why is it, why is it that every time I share my story, I talk to people who say, that's my story too? Right? How is it possible for years and years for people to sit and, and hear about Jesus and sing songs, and yet they seem unfazed, unmoved, unchanged, you know, where they look essentially the same now as they did 10 years ago? How is that possible and even common? Um, and I'm not smart enough, I think, to answer that question really, really well. Um, but I do want to suggest one this morning. And, and that is, uh, I think, uh, generally speaking, uh, for, for many churches, we take, we take the death and resurrection of Jesus really, really seriously, and we should. But I just don't think we take the life of Jesus very seriously. Right? And, and sometimes, even the way we talk about the gospel and talk about Jesus, uh, it's almost as if the only thing he ever came to do was to die, which was part of it, but if that, I don't think that's it, right? So, so even just think about the way that we typically talk about the gospel and the story of God uh, in human history, right? Uh, and so just draw a diagram to give a little visual, right? And so we typically start with creation. And uh, we talk about, you know, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, the Word was God, and God creates everything and, and calls it good, right? We're in God, uh, man is in right relationship with God, and we're in right relationship with each other, and we're in right relationship with creation, right? But of course, then uh, we rebel, and sin enters into the human experience, and sh the shrapnel of that is felt everywhere, right? It breaks the re relationship with God. It breaks the way that we interact with one another and the way we treat one another. Uh, it breaks the way we interact, interact with creation, but God in his goodness isn't willing to let the story end there, right? And so God in human history chooses a people for himself, not because they're good, but because he's really, really good. Right? And he says, I'm going to choose you for myself and you are going to be a light into the nations, right? You are going to be a blessing for all people. And the prophets, right, throughout the Old Testament are talking about this coming Messiah who's going to be coming through the, the house of David. And then here, just in a few months, believe it or not, December is coming, we come to celebrate the incarnation, right? God in the flesh, Jesus uh, takes on flesh. God takes on flesh and moves into the neighborhood, right? And then he goes on and we say, and that he, right, lives the perfect life and goes to the cross and dies uh, for our sins and is raised on the third day, right? And he sends into heaven and one day, that great hope we just got done singing about, he is going to return. Uh, and that is all true, right? I believe that to be true. The scriptures testify to this. Um, but there's one really big thing missing. Oh, I got a red one. That'll work great. Um, and that's everything that fits right there. Right? We almost sometimes, not always, but many times we skip over uh, the entire life and ministry of Jesus as if it's inconsequential. Right? As if there's nothing there for us. And when we treat the gospel like this, uh, what ends up happening is our understanding of God's work in the world and our part in that work essentially just becomes, right, to keep our nose clean, avoid all of the big sins, and then just wait, wait for him to return. And what I want to submit to you is, uh, if that's the case, we really don't need the Gospels. Right, but I don't think Jesus just came to die. Right, but he also came to show us an alternate way to live. Right, he showed us what it looks like to walk in step with the Father, right, to flesh out the kingdom uh, here and now. And 
So I think we, as followers of Jesus, one of the most important things that we can do is to marinate here, right? To spend our life soaking up the life of Jesus, watching the way that he moved and, and the way that he lived and the way that he loved and the way that he interacted with, with people and those who he esteemed and those he, who he really got on and called out. Because uh, there's so much there for us. And so with the rest of our time this morning, what I want to do is just kind of touch on that this morning. There's so much that we could say, but one of the incredible things uh, about Jesus is we see, we get to see in his life what it looks like. Right, and from the moment he inaugurates his public ministry to his final words to his disciples, right, he is going to paint this incredible picture for us of what it looks like to live in step with the Spirit. Right, and, and, and I'll just, I should probably not skip ahead of this, but at the very end, if you remember, the very end of Jesus' life, right, at the end when he has, we're talking on the other side of the cross, on the other side of his, his death and resurrection, after the calling of the disciples, after all the sermons, the miracles, the teachable moments, uh, Jesus has these final parting words to his disciples, through whom, by the way, he's about to change the world. Right? And he says, just as the Father has sent me, so now I am going to send you. Right? So now I am sending you out. Right now go and make disciples of all nations, right? baptizing them in the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you, and surely I'm with you to the end of the age. Now go. Right? These are like the culminating words of everything that we find Jesus doing in this space. It's the crescendo of his ministry. Right? Just as the Father has sent me, so now I am sending you. Right? So it becomes so imperative that we ask and, and deep soak in this, what does that sentness look like then? Right? If our calling is to be sent as Jesus is sent, what does that really look like? And so I want to open up the scriptures uh, to John chapter 2. John chapter 2, and this is, this is how Jesus is going to kick off this whole project publicly. He's preparing for this. He's been preparing for this for his entire life. This is what we find uh, beginning in verse 1. Uh, on the third day, a wedding took place at Cana in Galilee. Uh, Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. Uh, when the wine, though, was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, uh, they have no more wine. Now, to understand the gravity of this, you've got to think about this culturally, what was going on uh, in this moment. Um, in Jesus' day, if, if uh, a man was to become a father and have a daughter, I, by the way, I'm a father to two incredible daughters, and I was hoping to introduce them to you this morning, but one of them is homesick uh, with their mom. Um, but if I was to have a daughter in Jesus' day, on the day of her birth, I would start preparing for that wedding day uh, immediately. And I would go over to my barrel of kind of vinegary table wine and draw off the barrel and set it aside. Right? And then every year on her birthday, I would do that again in preparation for her wedding. And so that by the time she turned, you know, 14, 15, 16, 17, and she was married, uh, we were ready. And on the day of her wedding, we would go into uh, that cellar or that closet and, of course, you wouldn't pick the stuff that you just drew last year. You'd go to the really good stuff that's been sitting there maturing uh, for 15, 16 years. And we'd crack open that barrel, right? And everybody would, would get, grab a glass, and we would toast. We'd toast to the couple for getting married, and we'd toast to the father, right? Saying, what kind of man are you? Right? For 15 years, you have been preparing for such a time as this, for such a day as this. Well done. Right? And then when we kick off this celebration that would go for a number of days and the entire community would be a part of it, 
and we'd start working through the, what we've been preparing for for a long time. Right, but on this particular day, uh, the Father has not uh, prepared well. Right, and this is a, a culturally very shameful uh, moment. It was going to impact a lot of people. Right, this is several day long celebration. Typically, almost the entire community would be there to be a part of it. And somehow, some way, Mary finds out that this is going on and goes to Jesus. Right, and this is what we read in verse 4. Jesus' mother's, or end of 3, Jesus' mother said to him, They have no more wine. And Jesus replies, Why do you involve me? Right, my hour has not yet come. And she turns to the servants and said, Do whatever he, he tells you to do. Right, and I, I think this is a, a really fascinating moment because Jesus hesitates. And I almost think, maybe, wonder, maybe this is radical and Pastor Chris will have to fix this after I leave and correct everything I say. Um, but I think we almost, in this moment, see like this incredible glimpse of like the mystery of the incarnation, of Jesus being both God and man at the same time. Because he hesitates. Initially, his, his assumption is, oh, mom is just trying to manipulate things. You know what I mean? Mom's just trying to tell me what to do. Um, I've been preparing for my public ministry for a long time, and he didn't assume that this was going to be that moment. Um, but then, as, as Mary leaves, something changes, though. Right From that moment when Jesus initially assumes this isn't the moment, something in the Godhead stirs, and it changes. It's like the Spirit starts to light up in him like, this is it. And the Father nods his head, and Jesus, it hits him like, this is it. Uh, this is the moment. And, and as we'll see, of course, of course, it's, it's the moment. Because what we find is that Jesus is going to start his ministry uh, in many ways in the same manner, in the same kind of way that he's going to continue it for the rest of his life. And this is what we read uh, continuing in verse 6. Uh, Nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washings, each holding from 20 to 30 gallons. And Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. And so they filled them to the brim. And then he told them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. And they did so. And the master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine. And he had no idea where it came from, but the servants did. And then he called the bridegroom aside and he said, everyone brings out the choice wine first. And then the cheaper wine after the guests had too much to drink. But you have saved the best until now. Right? And I love this passage for so many reasons. But, I mean, if you just think about how incredible of a moment this is, for generations, God's people who have been called out for so long have been waiting for this moment. They have been waiting for the promised Messiah. Right? They had endured from the end of Malachi to the beginning of Matthew 400 years of silence. Right? They are longing and hungry. And God comes in the flesh, and he can start his ministry in so many different ways, right? He, he steps into a broken, broken reality, right? And, and, and in his power, I'm just thinking, like, I'm not God, but if I were, there are so many diff- other ways other than this that I would step into my public ministry and inaugurate this whole thing, right? He could have stepped into all of the, some of the, any of the oppression and social injustice that was being wielded by Rome, right? Or any of the... the stepping into just the death, the way that they led by the hammer and enforced the Pax Romana by just killing anybody who got in their way. Right? He, could have, he could have squared off with Caesar himself. He could have done, he, he could have amassed a giant army to show the might and the power and the glory of God. And instead, 
he chooses to step into a rather ordinary moment. I mean, it's a special occasion, but this is an ordinary moment on an otherwise ordinary day in the lives of an ordinary couple, so ordinary that we're not even given their names, and steps in in a moment, in an act of kindness and graciousness, compassion and generosity. And I just think that is so incredible. And if you look, about, look at what he's doing, I, mean, there, I think there's something very symbolic and powerful that's happening here. Jesus is really, in many ways, I think he's redefining what holiness looks like in the here and now. Everyday kind of holiness. Because what he does, he takes these barrels. I don't know if you caught what those barrels of water were used for. But they were ceremonial washing basins, right? And so if you were like a committed uh, Jewish person, uh, very religious, uh, you would use those to, like if I was, if I was one of those, uh, a Jewish person, and I did business with a Gentile, that would contaminate me. Or if I interacted socially with a Gentile, that would contaminate me. Pretty much anything could contaminate me. And then I would go to those basins and say certain purifying rites and be washed clean, right, before I could go into this space that, that uh, embodied right, a sacred space, a holy space where holy people go. And Jesus takes that water to whip up a ton of wine right, in an act of kindness at a Galilean feast to an ordinary, unnamed, newlywed couple. Uh, it is absolutely incredible. It's, it's almost as if in this moment Jesus is stepping in and he's saying, I mean to start my ministry right, in the same way that I mean to continue my ministry. And one of the things I mean to do is to shatter the distinctions between the holy and the unholy, the sacred space and the non-sacred space, right? The, the, the religious people and the non-religious people, those who are worthy and those who are not worthy, because now holiness is bleeding into the everyday. Right now, you are being gifted the Spirit, and I am being gifted the Spirit, and I am showing you what holiness looks like in the here and now, Right now, you and I are going to be vessels of that Spirit. Right? Paul uses the language of we are temples of the Holy Spirit, and we bring that holiness with us everywhere we go. Right? This was a, a huge shift. In fact, I think this is still a huge shift for us. Um, I'm relatively new to the southeast. I moved from Lincoln, Nebraska about a year ago, uh, and we were in L.A. before that, and the cultural difference is there's a cultural difference between uh, L.A. and uh, southeastern Tennessee, or eastern Tennessee. And, uh, you know, I think in a religious culture, we probably struggle with this maybe even more than some of the more post- post-Christian areas in the country. And that is that I think just as the religious community did uh, before Jesus, um, is we, we come to define holiness as disengagement. Right, we come to define being righteous. Right, we talked and saying about what it means to be a righteous people, the righteousness, as not doing certain things and not going to certain places and not engaging in cer- certain acts. Right, and and some of that is true. I'm not discrediting that, that at all. But Jesus also models for us something incredibly other. Right, he models for us a holiness that actually is a form of radical engagement. Right? And if you start to follow, and, and we do this deep soak in the life of Jesus, you start to see this everywhere. It's amazing to me how many of the most like, incredible ministry moments of Jesus' life are interruptions with ordinary, everyday people. And how many of them were people that culturally were deemed unclean, unworthy, 
unholy, outside, right? Over and over and over. This is Jesus, right, who physically touched lepers, which was unheard of. And at, the, at that time, same time, making himself ceremonial, ceremonially unclean. Unthinkable for a rabbi to do. Right? This is the Jesus, right? When the, the children come running to him, right? His disciples' immediate response is, oh no, this is, this is below our rabbi, right? Jesus is not in the daycare business, right? Uh, he doesn't volunteer in the nursery. He's bringing the sermon, you know? And Jesus says, don't you dare stop them from coming to me. They have so much to teach you about the kingdom of God and about what real faith looks like. Or you guys probably already know this, you know, but women, uh, the way that Jesus treated and interacted with women was revolutionary. Um, in Jesus' day, women were little more than property. They were right above cattle. Uh, they, couldn't, they couldn't testify in court because their word was deemed not trustworthy. Um, you know, their livelihood and survival depended entirely on how men treated them. And perhaps not surprisingly, like most of human history, many of them were not treated well. Right? And Jesus, over and over, we find these incredible interruptions to his life that become these everyday holy moments. Right? One particular, one of my favorites, right? He, he's sitting around the, the dinner table, which is where a lot of those ministry moments came, with religious authorities, right? The, the big power player pastor priests in the area, you know, the ones that have authored books and speak to big crowds and... and, and And then this woman comes in of disreputable character. Everybody knows who she is. Everybody knows what she does with her life and how she makes a living. Everybody knows. And she comes in and falls at Jesus' feet, right, and washes his feet with her tears and pours perfume over his feet. And the religious uppity-ups are all judging her in that moment, judging her for her past sins, condemning her in that moment for this current, what they perceive to be sin, of wasting this expensive perfume when it could be sold and given to the poor. And Jesus steps in and says, gentlemen, take notes. Right, the, This woman who in every, especially in that environment, would have been thought of as being lower than, and Jesus esteems her and honors her. says, man, she's the only one worshiping right now. You all got a lot to learn. I mean, we could do this all day long. Really, I have like seven more examples, but for time's sake, I'm not going to go there. Um, But it's incredible, right? This this way of Jesus that he shows us, these ordinary moments that become holy, sacred moments where Jesus steps in and demonstrates the love of the Father, especially to the marginalized, especially to the oppressed and the forgotten, and those thought by the religious community and otherwise as being less than, Right, Jesus begins his ministry that way. Right, and then he continues his ministry that way. And then at the end, in John chapter 20, verses 21 through 22, just as the Father has sent me, so now I am sending you. Right now go. Right, he says, you have been with me. You have watched me do it. You have seen the way that I have loved those who have crossed my path. You have watched how I step in and show compassion to the overlooked, to the beat down, to the marginalized. You've seen me love the unlovely and honor the dishonorable to lift up those the world has stepped on and stepped around. Now go. It's your turn. Now go. See, I, I don't think Jesus just came to die. I think he came to show us an altogether different way of being human, to show us how to live, to show us what the kingdom looks like here and now, 
It's beautiful. It's beautiful. I, I want to share uh, just a short story with you uh, as I close. Um, about 15 years ago, I took a season of my life to uh, move to the Dominican Republic and uh, with a good friend of mine named Mark, and we moved into uh, a small hut with a family uh, on the outskirts of the capital city. And um, we served there uh, for a number of months. And we did various projects around the island um, and uh, served a number of the local churches there. But one of our, th- our responsibilities that we did is uh, we would work with incoming American teens, youth ministries and, and church groups that would come in to serve. And, and we would help them get around the island and organize their work projects and do some teaching and, and worship and that kind of a thing. And near the end of our time, a group made a special request, and they asked that we take them to a leper colony that existed on the island, which I didn't even know was there until then. And so they came, and, and we did that. And, and it's interesting because, you know, uh, leprosy is curable. It's a curable disease. It doesn't exist in most parts of the world. Uh, but at least as of 15 years ago, places like Nepal and Dominican Republic uh, still very much existed. And much of the social stigma that we read about in here uh, very much existed in Santo Domingo and the Dominican Republic. Um, if you got leprosy, uh, you would be taken to a compound that was surrounded by 15-foot walls, and barbed wire fence on top. Your family would drop you off at the front gate and they would buzz out of there and you would never see them ever again. Uh, it was a death camp. And it was completely isolated and alone. Uh, You only had people go in. You never saw people come out. So we went to, just to be, honestly, uh, what do you do, you know? Um, We went to sing and and worship with them, to share the gospel, to to pray and just kind of be present uh, with these people that just never interacted outside of this this place. And, uh, man... It's hard to put to words the experience. If, if you know anything about leprosy, it, it typically uh, begins by you start to lose feeling in some of your extremities, um, your fingers and your toes. Uh, eventually, those will die and, and fall off. Um, and that's usually followed by your hands and your feet. If you live long enough, your arms, legs, ears. Uh, it's physically just a, an absolute devastating disease. Um, and so we were going through this place with these high school kids, and we are all just getting wrecked, you know. I mean, um, talk about hell on earth uh, is what it felt like. And yet, and yet, uh, the Spirit of God, there, there were some people there that were just saints. They were just incredible people, did incredible ministry. One man uh, had actually uh, moved in to be a local priest and pastor, uh, did not have leprosy when he moved in, but contracted it while he lived there simply to minister to this, these groups. So... Uh, we will be shaking his head and he will get a large round of applause by all of us one day. But we're in this space and eventually we make our way back to this back room in the compound and we walk through the door and we all froze. And there there was a man uh, who was isolated in this room who had lost both arms and both legs. Um, His ears, uh, he could not speak or hear and I'll be honest, I just froze. Um, I don't really have a category for that kind of human suffering. I'd never seen anything like it before. And we all froze except for my buddy Mark. And Mark pushed past us and walked up to the man and put his hand on the man's chest. And the man began to weep. 
And through an interpreter, we found out that this man um, lived entirely alone and uh, had not felt human touch in years. And could not speak, could not hear, if you can imagine that. And then my friend Mark did the unthinkable, and he fell to his knees, and he just embraced this man who is at this point just openly wailing and crying into Mark's chest. And I don't know if you've ever been a part of a moment that was so holy that there were no words that you couldn't really even speak of it, but that was one of those. And we spent the rest of the day in that compound, but Mark refused to leave this man's side. We came back from Mark hours, hours later. And I share that because that's a, that's, a, that's a holy moment. That's the kind of holiness I think I see in the life of Jesus. And the truth is, uh, it's, it's maybe likely that you'll never meet somebody who physically has leprosy. But there are people who are hurting and bleeding and dying on the inside all around you. And I don't care if it's L.A., Minneapolis, Lincoln, Nebraska, Knoxville, Oak Ridge. They are there. Uh, just turn on the news. Right? Ours is such a culture marked right now by fear, uh, by anger, hate, division, polarization, demonizing of the other. Right? Ours is mine as a millennial. Are we the most depressed, anxious medicated generation to ever walk the face of the earth. Uh, I talk to middle school teachers whose 13-year-old kids are having panic attacks. Um, addiction. We just moved, bought a house in South Knoxville. The amount of opioid addiction I know is not unique to South Knoxville. Uh, broken homes. Uh, I say this not because I, I don't think we have anything to fear. Right? We're taught that perfect love drives out fear. I don't think our, our reaction is to huddle in and, and be afraid and try to protect our family from the big bad world. I share this because the opportunities to put on display the love and the grace and the compassion of Jesus are everywhere. They are all around us if we will have eyes to see them. And my hope and my prayer for this church, for you as you move forward, is that this would be a place that practices the everyday holiness of Jesus. That when the, when the darkness faces itself as you look around and look outward, that this would not be a community that postures itself in fear of shrinking back, but that does what Jesus did, calls the darkness what it is, but then steps into that darkness with the light of the gospel, with the love of Jesus Christ. Let me pray for you. Lord God, I thank you so much for this community and just for the opportunity to open your word to get to know you a little more, to catch your heart for the outcast, the marginalized, the overlooked. Lord God, I ask that you would give each one of us, myself included, eyes to see those everyday, ordinary moments to step in and put on display your goodness, your love, your compassion. Lord God, I ask and pray for Oak Ridge, Lord, that your will would be done and that your kingdom would come in Oak Ridge as it is in heaven.
And we pray these things in your name and all God's people said, amen.